You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so... Continuing in the book, uh, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, now, there's a tradition of the early church that's actually carried over uh, to this day in some of the more historic church buildings. So think more like um, St. John's the Evangelist right here on the corner of Minor, and then up El Dorado, First Presbyterian Church, those sort of buildings. And the, the tradition is that the central portion of the church, sort of where we congregate, is typically called the nave. Where the people are is called the nave, or navis. And the word literally means the ship. The people congregate in the ship. And the reason is that the ship was the early church symbol for Christianity. Rather than a fish on a car or a cross on a necklace, the symbol was that of a boat. And the idea is that the church is being tossed about by the waves and the doubts and the persecution and evil. Yet despite all of the, you know, this, this turbulent ride through the, through the Christian journey, Jesus is getting his people across to the other side. The Christian life is a storm-tossed journey with Jesus. We're in this boat. We're in this boat with Christ. But it is not an easy ride. It is not a smooth ride. Now, if we're to be honest with God and we're to be honest with ourselves, which I hope that we're prepared to do that today, we are far more interested in our own comfort and our own convenience than we are interested in being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We love the idea of growing in our faith. We just loathe the process. We we want to see our faith expanded. We just don't want to see our faith stretched. We want the muscles without the exercise. We want the end without the means of God. And so many of us want to see the miraculous move of God. I believe that every single one of us want to see a miraculous move of God in our lives in some way or another for him to step up, step up on the edge of our boat and to quiet our storms and to command nature on our behalf. But very few of us are willing to be placed into those desperate positions that do call for the miraculous move of God. In other words, we want the supernatural without the storm. We want the adventure from the safety of the harbor. 
But as John Shedd once put it, a ship in harbor is safe, but that's not what a ship was built for. That's not what ships were built for. Not for the safety of the harbors, but for the open seas. As we see here in Mark, Jesus calls us to set out with him into the deep and at times dangerous waters where we too can experience Jesus in a significant way like what we read here in Mark chapter 4. If you're taking notes, the first thing we're going to look at here in Mark is a great storm. A great storm. Verse 35. And on that day, when evening had come, pause, on that day. So Mark is making a connection here that the movement into the waters is happening on that day. Well, what day? Well, if we just reverse here just a little bit, go back, what we see is all of chapter 4 is happening on one single day. It's the day that Jesus is teaching a number of parables to the crowds that have gathered on the shores. And now there's this clear transition in the way that Jesus is going to be teaching his disciples. Jesus is making a move in the way that he teaches and the way he instructs from the safety of the shores. Jesus is taking them into unsafe waters. Continuing in verse 35. And he said to them, let's go across to the other side. Now, we often say things like, you know, Jesus will allow the storms of life to come into our lives. We have someone in our lives that is really going through it, will come along, well-meaning, come alongside them and say, you know what, I know it's difficult, I know it's challenging, but what you need to know is that Jesus allows the storms sometimes to come in our lives. Now, while that is completely true, I think it's a little bit too passive to describe what we're seeing here in Mark. Jesus doesn't simply allow the storms. He leads us into them. It's Jesus' idea here. All right, gentlemen, let's go to the other side. See, this is not the disciples saying, hey, Jesus, we got this thing that we want to go see on the other side. And Jesus is like, oh, this is not going to turn out well, but I got to allow the storm because they got to learn their lesson. It's Jesus' ideal. Hey, let's go. Let's go to the other side knowing what it's going to entail. The question is why. Why would Jesus intentionally, intentionally lead his disciples into the storm? Now, it's not a matter of if. Every single one of us know that a storm is coming. It's not a matter of if a storm is coming, but why? Why would Jesus intentionally lead us into storms? Why would he intentionally lead his disciples into this storm? And I believe the answer is this, that the shore is where you hear the teaching. The storm is where you learn it. And you ask anyone who has uh, lived long enough, there's a world of a difference between hearing something and learning it. Between information and wisdom. The teaching on the shore exchanges information about God, but the storm presses that knowledge of God deep into our bones. Chances are you're going to forget about 99% of all the sermons that you have ever heard. I've just got to settle that. (laughs) I've got to be okay with that. You're going to forget about 99% of the sermons that you have ever heard, but it is very unlikely that you are going to forget the significant storms that you face. And it is very unlikely that you are going to forget the ways in which God met you in the midst of that storm. How he spoke to you in that storm. How he moved in that storm. How he was present in that storm. His hand involved in rescuing your life in the midst of that storm. 
There are things that you've just got to learn in the treacherous waters and in the storm of life, in the deepest waters. Christ is calling us into the deep waters. Because there is a trust and there is a fear that is otherwise lacking in us until it is formed in the midst of situations that take us absolutely outside of our control. It's easy to control situations when you're on the, on the shore. It is impossible to control your situation when you're in the midst of the storm. And that's where Jesus is leading us, where everything in our lives is absolutely outside of our control. Now, there's an old tradition among sailors of getting a sparrow tattoo. And the, 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 the idea is that if you've traveled 5,000 or in some traditions 10,000 nautical miles, you get a sparrow tattoo for every 5,000 or 10,000 miles. And so you travel these significant amounts of, of miles on the water, you get a tattoo, and then you do it again, and you get another tattoo, and so on and so forth. And what these tattoos represented was time on the seas. It represented experience, it represented uh, perseverance, and it represented loyalty. It meant something. And in the same sense, Christians are those who bear the marks of the sea. They bear the marks of the sea. Our credentials, please listen to me, our credentials of faithfulness, our credentials of Christian character are not how many books we've read or how many sermons you've listened to or how many seminars you've attended or how many classes you've been a part of from the safety of the shores. Our credentials are the scars of the sea. This is what Paul believed, that the scars of faithfulness to Christ were his credentials of faithfulness and character. The proof that we have spent time with Jesus in the storms of life, it is proof that we have left the harbor with Christ. That we have refused to isolate our lives, that we have refused to assign our lives to lives of comfort, convenience, and safety. We have obeyed the voice of Jesus Christ saying, let's go to the other side. That was nice, what we had there on the shore. But that is not the typical Christian experience. Will you come with me? Verse 36. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat. So we've already seen this pattern in the book of Mark. Mark seems to be highlighting at multiple points here that there's separation occurring. Earlier in Mark, we read that many were coming to Jesus to be healed miraculously. In fact, so many people were coming that you couldn't even get into the house. These guys had to break open the roof to lower the friend through. Masses of people coming to Jesus because they wanted their lives fixed. The very next day, Jesus couldn't be found. And everyone is looking for Jesus, but they're looking for Jesus in the same places they found him healing earlier. And it was only the disciples that knew to go and look for him in the wilderness. Many people follow Jesus into the miraculous. Very few are willing to follow him into the wilderness. And we see the same pattern occurring here in Mark. Many people will come to the teachings of Jesus on the safeties of the shore. Very few will venture with him into the dangerous waters of the sea. There's separation occurring. 
As one commentator pointed out, the boat is the image of those who travel in intimate fellowship with Jesus, separated from the masses who stand on the security of the shore. There are those who know that there is comfort and safety in the harbor. Theoretically, you can't experience that comfort and safety in the harbor. But they also know that that's not what the ship was built for. That's not what we were redeemed for. Christ did not set us free from our sins and damnation so that we could find a nice little cozy place on the shores, safe in the harbor. He calls us out into the seas. What do we find in these seas? Look at me in verse 37. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Now, the geography of the Sea of Galilee is important for us to grasp. Uh, To this day, this area is very prone to storms and squalls. And the reason is that the Sea of Galilee sits at about 700 feet below sea level. So not just sea level, but below sea level, 700 feet. And the Sea of Galilee is also surrounded by these, these, these mountains that reach, in some points, uh, 9,000 feet. And so there, these winds rush down these mountains, dropping at an estimate of about 10,000 feet in just a matter of miles. They, they pick up steam as they're coming down uh, these, these mountains. And so you get a mixture of the cold, damp mountain airs coming down swiftly and mixing with the, the dry low, desert-like, warm air of the Sea of Galilee. And what ends up happening is it brings about these severe and sudden storms that can strike with little to no notice. The storms are severe, and they are often sudden. Ain't that the truth? This is a perfect illustration, because like the storms of our lives, they are not waiting until we are ready and bracing for it. There are no 10-day forecasts when it comes to the storms of life. That next tragedy, that next disaster, that next circumstance isn't showing up on your feet and saying, hey, in six days it's going to get really tough, so be prepared. It comes sudden. And when it hits, it is never convenient. We are never ready. We're just never ready. We're never prepared. We're never reaching that moment where we're like, all right, now bring it on. It comes out of the blue. Verse 38. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Jesus, do, do you not understand what is going on right now? Do you not care that we are sinking, that we are dying? We are going down and you're going down with us. I think this account of Jesus, though extremely brief, resonates with so many people. And maybe one of the the more famous accounts from the book of Mark, because I think it's because we see ourselves in this story. We see our experiences. We see our disappointments. We see our fears. We see our storms as we're reading this account in Mark 4. Life can feel like what we're reading here, that the winds are beating against us, the waves are breaking into our lives. We are frantically trying to bail the water out, but the water comes in faster than we can bail it out. We're already sinking. Life comes at us without warning. Life comes out at us 
without, without mercy. And then we have these thoughts in our minds, wait, Jesus, I thought if I were to follow you, it would mean an easier life. I thought you were calling me into the, that blessed life. What is all this? And I'm listening to your voice. I'm following your call. Don't I deserve some ease? Don't I deserve some tranquility? Don't I deserve some peace? What is this? I, this was your idea. And things just got worse. And as if the storm isn't bad enough, we muster up the guts to turn to Jesus and ask for help. And what we discover is that we feel like he's asleep and doesn't even care we're sinking. As if the storm isn't bad enough, we turn and we feel as if Jesus is totally aloof, he's totally asleep, and we're left alone to our own devices. Yet we know that this is not the end of the story. Amen? We see, secondly, Mark turns our attention to a great calm. Verse 39. And he awoke, and he rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. So the scene is, is extremely remarkable here. Mark tells us that it went from a great storm, or, or literally in the original language, a mega storm, to a great calm, a mega calm. I don't know what a mega calm is, but I really would like to see it and experience it. From a mega storm to a mega calm. Now, something that was pretty widely agreed upon in the ancient world, no matter where you went, no matter what sort of religious affiliations were present there, was that the sea was the place of unstoppable force. It is just this beating presence and force that no matter what you do, you cannot bridle. It was, as it is today, something that cannot be controlled don't really understand sort of the reverence that you should have for the ocean until you bring children to it. Taking your kids to the ocean is great for your kids, uh, but it's a little bit nerve-wracking for adults. Even my own children are competitive swimmers. I have a teenager who's a competitive swimmer, and yet you never take your eyes off your kids. Because what ends up happening is they move further and further out and further and further down one side or the other. And there's a certain point where you look out and you realize that they're like a thousand meters away. So we took our kids, we had a little ocean trip to the, to the ocean, and the kids were out playing in the water. And where, the beach that we were at had these flags, and it was the flag system, and so the flags indicated what the water was like. So the one day we're out there, there's a yellow flag, which means, hey, be cautious. This is an ocean. There's waves and undercurrents and that sort of thing. But you can swim, just be cautious. And so that we, we saw this little plaque that explained the, the different flags. And then next, there was red flag, which means warning. We suggest that you do not go in the water, uh, that sort of thing. And then there was double red flag, which means, like, don't even look at the ocean or it'll suck you out kind of thing. <laughs> so, so one day, we're, you know, we're out there. The kids are in the water. It's yellow flag. The very next day was double red flag day. Sure enough, the kids want to swim. Now, I can't go up to the ocean and be like, you know what, we got this nice little family vacation planned here, so I'd like you to, like, calm down. Nothing I do will ever change that ocean's mind. You ever, you ever tried to just stand in the water and withstand the waves? Those waves just beat into you. Those waves do not care if you are there or not. 
So the waters were seen as the embodiment of chaos. This was the, the ancient philosophy that the waters embodied chaos. It was a symbol of uncontrollable destruction that could only be bridled by the very hand of God Almighty. And so these disciples would have known this. They wouldn't have been shocked by all of this. In fact, they, were, they, were, they had a Jewish upbringing, so they would have been aware of the ancient Hebrew scriptures, the teachings of the Old Testament. For instance, the, the, in the book of Genesis, where we're told in the creation account that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the dark and formless waters of bringing about order out of chaos. They would have been familiar with psalms like Psalm 107. Listen to this psalm and how prophetic this psalm is. And some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. And they saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to the heaven. They went down to its depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men, and they were at their wit's end. And then they cried to the Lord, Yahweh, in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Peace. Be still. See, what the disciples have just witnessed is that this power, power that is only attributed to God Almighty, not demigods, not partial gods, like that, this description right here was reserved for the God, the God of Israel, God Almighty. And what they have just seen is that this power that is God Almighty now resides in this Jesus that is with them. That although the sea and the storm has this immense amount of power, Jesus has infinitely more power. That he is capable of taking a great storm and bringing about a great calm. Friend, you need to hear that this morning. This Jesus is capable of taking a great storm and bringing about a great calm. This is why in verse 41, they said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They're looking at each other and they're like, What just happened? Who is this guy? They knew that there was something significant about this Jesus. He heals people, the paralytic is healed, the leper is cleansed. Like they know that there is something going on, something divine present in this guy, but they have no idea that this is the divine Son of God, that this is God incarnate. Up until this point, though Jesus has been revealing his nature and has been revealing his, his character, Jesus' full identity is still concealed. And so they're turning to, each, to one another and like, <laughs> what? What just happened? They're not grasping who Jesus truly is, not yet. In fact, the gospel writers will tell us they'll grasp it once he is raised from the dead. In fact, we see this when the disciples wake Jesus. I find this really interesting. When they wake Jesus, in this specific circumstance, they call him teacher. Look with me in verse 38. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, my wife is an educator, 
And we have a lot of, of teachers present today, and I realize that how great your life work is and how much you contribute to the, to the common good. Uh, we, we are, we've got nothing but respect for teachers. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, it's Teacher Appreciation Week this week, right? Okay, yes it is. They're not going to tell you that. I just did. We respect our teachers. We love our educators, but no offense. If I'm in the middle of a storm and I'm sinking... I'm looking elsewhere. <laughs> like, you, you guys are great, and we entrust our children into your intellectual intelligence here. But when we're in the midst of the storm, our boat is sinking. I'm looking somewhere else. When you're about to die in the storm, you do not need a teacher. Listen to me. You need a savior. You, need, you don't need a teacher. You need a savior. But the truth is, what we're seeing here in Mark is what we, how we often approach Jesus. We come to Jesus like this. We come to the end of ourselves. We get into these circumstances where we are in over our heads. We, like the, the sailors in Psalm 107, we are at our wit's end. And then somehow, I don't know how we get here, but when we're sinking and we're dying, we convince ourselves that we just, if, if I just had the right answer to this, if I just knew a little bit more, then I'd be able to pull myself out of this. My marriage is horrible right now, so if I just had a, another marriage seminar, I'm being overcome by sin right now, so if I just read one more book about sin, if I just knew the right answers, then my life would be okay, then the storm would cease, then I'd be able to pull myself out of this situation. We approach Jesus simply as a teacher and we forget that Jesus came to this earth to deliver us, to rescue us, to save. See, the storms, and this is why we need storms in our lives, the storms remind us that Jesus didn't simply come to tell you what to do. Jesus did not come to earth to just tell you how to fix situations, or to give you the right answer. He came to give us himself. And the storms bring us to the end of ourselves where we are confronted with our limitation, where we're confronted with our lack. When we're on the safety of the shores, we think we are the bee's knees. We think we got it. We, th we, we got life handled. And Jesus is like, really? Come with me. Let's see how well you do out there. Why do we need storms? Because we need to rediscover who Jesus truly is, that he is not really our teacher. He's our deliverer. And before Jesus is our teacher, he must be our savior. When the Bible describes that we were dead in our trespasses and sin, what we require at that moment is not just to be told what to do. Dead people can't just follow instructions. We don't need to be told what to do. We don't need a better example. We don't need just a little bit more motivation. We don't need just our little Sunday morning boost for the rest of the week. We need to be made alive by the living Christ. When we are overcome by our failure, we don't need just another illustration of how it's done right because then we feel like more of a failure and more of a failure. We need to look to the cross where Jesus Christ took all of our failure and all of our sin and all of our unrighteousness and in exchange gave us his perfection, his holiness, his righteousness.
when the storms of life are beating us down, we don't need just another motivational speaker to inspire us. We don't need just another pep talk. We need the spirit of the living Christ to give us life and hope. We need the spirit of the living Christ to lift our eyes above the storm and above the waves to see the Lord of the storm. We don't need to look inward. We need to look upward and onward. We don't need just a little speech. We don't need another lesson. We don't need a little bit more information. We need the living Christ that raises men and women from the dead and animates our lives with the Holy Spirit. You don't need another teacher. You need a deliverer. We need a rescuer. Jesus is the one who did stand at the edge of the boat and calm the chaos. But as we read on in the book of Mark, we know that at the cross, he didn't just stand at the edge of chaos, he actually cast himself into it for our sake. How is Jesus able to, to calm the raging seas and the storms in our lives? Because he went willingly headlong into it for our sake. He experienced the chaos of God's wrath, the chaos of judgment, the chaos of condemnation, the chaos of punishment and penalty so that we could receive his eternal peace. Amen? Now, if they really would have grasped who was in the boat with them, I have to imagine that they would have understood how unfounded their fears are at this moment. How just ridiculous it would be for them to be fearful at this moment. Look with me in verse 40. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? In other words, what Jesus is saying is, if you only knew what I was capable of, if you only knew who I was, if you only knew who was in the boat, if, if you only knew what I was going to accomplish, you, you question whether or not I care about you, question whether or not that you're, you're drowning, if you only grasped how far I was willing to go for you. If you only grasped how far I was willing to go for the sake of your soul and for the sake of the world if you only knew that I was headed towards the cross. As Jesus calms the storm. Finally, what we see here in Mark, the end of chapter four, is a great fear. A great fear. Now, there are play, play on words here in Mark. There's a great storm, verse 37, a great calm, uh, 39, and then a great fear. Verse 41, mega storms, mega calm, mega fear. Jesus asks, why are you so afraid? But then even after Jesus calms the storm, I find this interesting. They're afraid because of the storm. He calms the storm, but they're still afraid. There's still fear. Jesus challenges their faith. Jesus challenges their fear. But it's important to understand something, a dynamic that's going on here. That Jesus did not intend to rid them of fear in general. Jesus intended to transform their fear. Here's a question that we need to consider. How does God intend to deal with the fears that grip our lives? We are fearful people, let's be honest. We are fearful, timid anxious people. We are gripped by fear. Some of us are even paralyzed by fear. The more we read, the more we tune into the news, the more we discover about life, the more we are afraid to just face another day. And so the question is, how does God intend to deal with the fears that grip our lives? 
it's not simply by ridding us of fear. In fact, I would go as far as to say that there is no use simply asking God to remove your fears. I think it's actually a waste of time to continually ask God, remove these fears from our life, remove these fears from our life. Well, then what, what's the alternative? The way that God frees us from our fears is actually by replacing it. That's what we're seeing here in Mark. God doesn't just remove fear, he replaces it. What do I mean? Jesus re- replaces the, the unholy, unfounded, unbelieving fears that essentially assess our situation in light of the fact that God is not caring and not near and incapable. God takes those fears and replaces it with a holy fear, marked by faith, marked by trust, marked by confidence, where we begin to assess our situations in light of the fact that God is near, that God does care, that God is more than capable. He takes the unholy fear and he replaces it with holy fear. He takes the anxiety and he replaces it with awe. Your problem is not that you have too much fear in your life. Your problem is that you don't fear enough. Wow, that's a game changer. Your fear that is gripping your life is not too big, as large as it, found, as it feels, as much as, as ominous as it feels, as much as it feels like this big burden that is weighing us down week after week. Your fear is not too big, it's too small. And the good news for the fearful this morning is that God intends to replace it. Listen to the words of Paul Tripp. The fact of the matter is life is bigger than us. We will be in many situations that are beyond our strength and beyond our wisdom. And it's only in those moments that our heart will have rest if we fear God above all else. If we are taken up by the glory of his power and his love and his grace and his wisdom and his presence, only that deep awe or fear of God, only that fear has the power to defeat all those other fears that would stop you and paralyze you. You don't need a fear removal. You need a fear replacement. And this is what Jesus is doing in this, in this very scene. He is taking those unholy fears and he's replacing it with a holy fear. An awe and a reverence of God. Now, based on some of the looks I'm getting right now, I have to imagine for some of us, this concept that we are to fear God is probably foreign. Because for so many years, you've been conditioned to think of God as simply gentle, caring, and loving. We see the God that's revealed in the person, the work of Jesus Christ, who is so intimately acquainted, who is so compassionate, who is so near, who is so, who is so gentle. To not undermine that, those characteristics of God, not to undermine those attributes, but the Bible tells us of a holy God, a God that we are actually to, to fear, a God that we are to revere, a holy God in, in, in whose presence that we are to tremble. And shake. The church for many, many years has been plunged into the mystery of fearing God. And to this day, I have never really heard an explanation of fear of the Lord that is quite adequate. I've never heard it explained or come up with something myself where I feel like that's exactly what the Bible means when it talks about fear of the Lord. 
but the church continues to be plunged into the mystery of that holy fear of God. And sometimes a story helps explain these sort of things. As I was preparing for this, this sermon, I was reminded of a story from my childhood, a, a children's story called The Wind in the Willows. And in a chapter called The Piper and the Gates of Dawn, it follows the, the, the course of this, this mole and a rat that are on a journey to go discover the otter's son that has been lost. And so this journey brings them to an island where they're granted a, a grand vision of this divine being called the friend and the helper. And from the moment they arrive at this island, there's a sense that there's something different here. In fact, the rat calls it a, a holy place. There's something different about this. He describes that suddenly the mole felt a great awe fall upon him. An awe that turned his muscles to water. He bowed his head and rooted his feet into the ground. It wasn't a panic terror. Indeed, he felt wonderfully at peace and happy. But it was an awe that struck and held him there. Without seeing, he knew that it could only mean that some distinguished presence was very, very near. With difficulty, he turned to look to his friend and saw him at his side. He too was stricken and trembling violently. So trembling, the mole raised his humble head and he noticed that all of nature, which was previously described as bustling and alive, all of nature was all of a sudden calm and quiet like the seas of Galilee. In fact, the narrator describes nature as if it is holding its breath for this event. Everything goes quiet. Everything goes calm. Everything goes still. And he looks into the very eyes of this figure called the, the friend and the helper. And this is what we read. Rat! He found breath to whisper, shaking. Are you afraid? Afraid, murmured the rat. His eyes shining with unutterable love. Afraid of him? Oh, never. Never. And yet, oh yet, oh mole, I am afraid. Then the two animals, crouching to the earth, bowed their heads and did worship. Are you afraid? Of course I'm not afraid. And yet I'm afraid. Do you have fear right now? Of course I don't have fear. I have peace. And yet I have fear. As we transition in our time of, of worship and going to singing, what, what we need to understand is that worship, as the Bible describes it, is this strange combination of intimacy and awe. Worship is a strange mix of intimacy and awe in light of a God who is both transcendent and yet imminent. He is the king that is seated above the throne, high above the heavens, and yet the God who is so near to the broken and to the lowly. Intimacy and awe where we tremble in the presence of a holy God. A God who the Bible describes as the lion of the tribe of Judah who is far from tame. He is a lion with fierce teeth and he's on the move. And yet there we discover in the presence of this fierce lion that we have never been more safe in his care. We've, been ne we've never been more safe than in his arms. The lion and the lamb. He's safe, but then he's not safe. He's not safe, but then he's good. And that lion and the lamb, this Jesus Christ of Mark 4, has stepped into the boat with us to bring about a great calm and a great fear.
And so the question today is, how will we respond? How will we respond? Will we just continue on in indifference? Will we continue on in doubt, assessing our situations as if God is not near and capable and caring? Or will we too tremble in a holy fear and ask ourselves, who is this Jesus that has stepped into our boat? Amen?